Hello and welcome to Clinical Chats, a podcast for sexual and reproductive healthcare professionals. Clinical Chats, formerly known as the Family Planning Files, is a program from the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health, or CTCSRH, formerly known as the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning, or NCTCFP and is funded by the Office of Population Affairs in order to enhance the knowledge of Title X clinicians and other staff. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the recent announcement from the FDA that OPIL has been approved to be the first over-the-counter hormonal contraceptive oral pill available in the U.S., and what this means for both patients and clinicians. Joining our conversation today is Anitra Beasley, MD, MPH. Dr. Beasley is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Baylor College of Medicine, where she also completed her medical degree. Dr. Beasley also completed a fellowship in family planning care at Columbia University of New York, where she also received her MPH. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Beasley. We're so excited to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this invitation and opportunity to talk about the OPIL. So to start with, for our listeners, can you explain what O-Pill is compared to other hormonal contraceptive pills? Absolutely. But let's take a little step back first. As many people in the audience already know, hormonal contraceptive pills contain either both an estrogen and a progestin, or just a progestin only as their hormonal component. And the estrogens and the progestins have different roles in preventing pregnancy. For for many years, only one progestin-only pill was available in the United States. We now have two types of progestin-only pills, um, one with the progestin norgestrel, which is the hormone that is actually in the O-pill, and the other with drosperinone. So what the O-pill is, is a progestin-only oral contraceptive pill. And all of the hormonal contraceptive pills on the market, apart from O-pill, are by prescription only. And do we know what some of the reasons were for the FDA, in particular, approving O-pill for over-the-counter use? You mentioned that it is progestin only, as opposed to those other hormonal contraceptive options? Yeah, it's more of a Maybe not such a why not, but why not before. Progestin-only pills made with the same hormone as the O-pill have been successfully used to prevent pregnancy for decades. From that, we know that they are incredibly safe and effective. But unlike estrogen-containing pills, there are few and almost no contraindications for using progestin-only pills, especially the ones made with norgestrel. And so I think that that is the reason why it was selected as the pill to go up in front of the FDA and why it was approved just because of the safety and efficacy that we know. Based on the FDA approval and recommendations, are there any regulations or guidance on who can access the O-pill over-the-counter, such as age restrictions or anything like that? Um, no, there were no age restrictions put on the O-pill by the FDA. So everyone who desires to use the O-pill should be able to obtain it over-the-counter without difficulty. 
Do we know what the cost might be for Opil or when consumers can expect to start seeing it on the store shelves? Um, kind of. The expectation is that it won't be available until the first quarter of 2024. So people should not run out looking for it right now because it won't be there. And with respect to cost, I don't know. But from what I have read, the manufacturer is really wanting to make sure that the pills are affordable and with respect to the cost and also with respect to some programs to help people access the medication. And so moving more into some of the pharmacology around OPIL, you mentioned that there are very few contraindications for those who can safely take OPIL, but would you elaborate on what those conditions might be or when a patient should stop using OPIL? Yeah. So there are, like I said, just a few contraindications. Some of those might be with people with current breast cancer or who have had breast cancer in the past five years, people with severe liver disease, such as cirrhosis, people with a history of bariatric surgery, but that's more so just because the medication can't be absorbed as well because And people that have uh, certain types of liver tumors, some rheumatic diseases, people who are on medications that may interact with progestins, which are not many, but that would be something to think about. And what should patients do if they accidentally miss taking their O-pill that day? And is it safe to take emergency contraception alongside the O-pill? Yeah. So this is going to be a big one. So if you miss your O-pill, you should take it as soon as you can, even if that means taking, you know, two pills in in one day. But the thing with the O-pill or pills that are made with the same hormone, their half-life is shorter than some other pills. So if you miss a dose of your O-pill by even just as much as a few hours, you need to start over. You are no longer protected. And so you need to use backup medication or you could use emergency contraceptive pills. But if you only miss one pill, then just using a backup method for a couple of days should be fine as you get back on track. And if a patient desires to get a progestin-only contraceptive method via prescription, perhaps because it's cheaper, is that still possible? That we don't know, but I will say that there are a lot of medications that you can get over the counter and you can still get with a prescription. For example, I can prescribe prescription strength ibuprofen, whereas you could just, you know, take a few pills that you can buy over the counter. So there certainly are examples of medications that are over the counter and by prescription. Second thing I would say is that there are many different types of contraceptive pills that may have the same ratio of hormones, either progestin only or estrogen plus a progestin that are available. So for example, if I'm prescribing, let's say an estrogen containing pill to my patient, I could find a whole bunch with 20 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and X amount of the exact same progestin. So I imagine that those are not going to go away just because the O-pill is over 
the counter. Um, but I can't say for sure, but that would be what I think is going to happen. Looking at a little bit more big picture and population wise, what will having over the counter hormonal birth control options mean for health equity and access throughout the country? You know, I don't want to be grandiose and be like, you know, it'll be revolutionary and life changing, but I think it will be very meaningful. Right now, if you think about what's available over the counter, they tend to be or don't tend to be, they are non-hormonal methods. They are coitally dependent methods, which makes them not useful at all if you don't actually have them around at the time. And they tend to overall be a little less effective, especially if you're not using them perfectly. And, you know, I would say none of us are perfect. So most of us probably don't use things like that perfectly each and every time. So I think that this is going to make access to having a more effective method that is not, you know, dependent on using it just at the time of having sex available to people without having to talk to their physician or other clinician to be able to buy something over the counter to use it, you know, when they are in a relationship and when they are not in a relationship, not meaning that you can take a pill one day and take a pill another day. But if you're like, Hey, I'm in this relationship for these three months and I am no longer partnered or no longer sexually active. And I want to take a break for a few months. You know, you have the flexibility of doing that without having to talk to anyone at all. As we've talked about a little bit earlier as well, since this pill is so safe and effective, there really wasn't before and isn't a reason why you should have to talk to a provider before you get the medicine. So it's just, you know, you can be independent and access something um, very easily. So this announcement came out mid to late July. So if you're listening to this podcast, it was just a few weeks ago. We're still learning so much about what this rollout is going to involve. Dr. Beasley, is there some good resources or good places that clinicians could go to to learn more about OPIL, both for themselves and for any clients or patients who come to them with questions? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that, you know, the OPIL is it's nothing new. So most clinicians who prescribe contraceptives are going to be very familiar with the O-pill or the mini pill. It's probably a pill that they've been prescribing, you know, during their entire career. So I think that that's really important. It's like, it's not new. You already know this. You already can do this. It just means that the patients picking up this pill over the counter they may be talking to you or they may not be talking to you. But I think the same sources that you get for most of your information are going to have articles or tips or things like that. I am sure Bedsider will have something. You know, my favorite thing up to date will have something. The manufacturer's website is also going to have something. You know, even though I tell my patients not to, you know, play Dr. Google, that's going to be there. But I mean, it really is a safe and effective medication that we already know a whole bunch about. And I think that's probably going to be one of the things that is really important to connect with patients. Like this isn't 
something incredibly new. It isn't something experimental. It isn't something that they just tested for a couple of minutes and then rolled out. This is the same medication that you've been getting by prescription for a really long time. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, but before you go, we talked a little bit about this, but if you could give our clinician listeners one takeaway from our podcast about Opil coming to market and what it means, what would you say? You know, I would say this is big because of equity, as we've talked about before, and independence. You asked me to say something quickly, but, you know, of course, I'm not going to. You know, we've got a lot of people that don't have great access to health care in this country. And I think it's going to be great for people who don't have the care that they deserve or for also people who, you know, may not want people to know that they are, you know, sexually active. I think this is going to be great for, you know, perhaps teenagers and things like that who you know, don't want to be on their parents' insurance or don't have, you know, care where they can take control of their ability to have children and have children. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Beasley, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Beasley about the latest in contraceptive news and developments, the virtual National Reproductive Health Conference from CTCSRH is taking place from September 11th through the 13th online, and there are still open registration places. For previous podcast episodes, search for Clinical Chats or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcsrh.org. While you're there, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Clinical Connections, at the top of the page. You can also follow the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health on Twitter at ctcsrh, all lowercase, and on LinkedIn. The CCCSRH is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS Grant Number 5, FPTPA 0060-31-02-00. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or medical advice endorsement of specific products. Opinions expressed herein are the views of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. An official support or endorsement by DHHS, OASH, and or OPA is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of Clinical Chats.